I'm going to do this. I'm going to run for the United States Senate. The time is now for fresh ideas and new leadership. I'm running for student council because of you and for you. That is why I stand before you today to announce my candidacy for president of the United States of America. Welcome to the Arena Talks podcast, where we interview emerging political leaders from across the country. My name is Ravi Gupta, co-founder of the Arena, and today we interview Mike Johnson, candidate for Colorado governor. Uh, Mike was a teacher in the Mississippi Delta. He went on to lead three different schools and then become a state senator where he pushed for uh, policy reforms across the spectrum, but is most well known uh, as a leader in education policy and even advised the Obama campaign in 07-08 on education policy. Mike and I talk about uh, the future for kids in Colorado. He talks about uh, the problem of gun violence and what we can do about it. And then he talks about how you can get involved in this campaign. So let's jump right in. Mike Johnston, welcome to the Arena Talks podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Delighted to be here. So Mike, you know, we both share a passion for educating kids and spent some time in Mississippi. Tell us a little bit about your experience as a public school teacher in Mississippi and and how that might have shaped your future role as a uh, public servant and elected official. Uh, you bet. I, I think it probably shaped every part of my decision to both become a school principal, my decision to get involved in uh, politics, and my decision to run for governor uh, today. I, as you know, I came out of college and had always wanted to go to the, to Mississippi. It always wanted to go to the South. It felt like it carried a special place in American history around both some of America's greatest kind of civil rights atrocities happened there, and also some of America's greatest civil servants kind of rose up from there and advocated for change. And so I was just delighted to immerse myself in those communities and lived in Greenville, Mississippi, which I absolutely loved. And I found that, you know, you both discovered all the ways that uh, schools have great promise, which is the power you can build between students and adults to convince young people they're capable of accomplishing anything. And you also saw all the ways in which kind of our, our schools were incapable of providing the services that kids needed in terms of how uh, you make sure that they are connected and that they have both a school culture that supports and embraces them, that they have rigorous curriculum, that they have teachers who uh, can help accelerate their needs. I just found like uh, it really was what inspired me to want to stay in education and to want to lead a school because I wanted to be able to build a place where you not only could build a really sacred community for kids during one hour of the day that they were in your class, but could you have a building where from 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. all of those values were aligned, all those visions were aligned, and the kids experienced one uh, continuous set of high expectations. And so you came back to Colorado and became a school leader. And I think you you were a school leader of two different schools that uh, had students with uh, pretty dramatically different needs. Uh, tell us about those two experiences and what you might have learned. Um, you bet. I actually, um, yeah, I, I one part of what the Mississippi experience inspired me to do was to want to be a school leader. And so I uh, came back to Colorado and I ran three different schools actually in Colorado. One was served kids who lived uh, in um, in group custody. So they lived in state custody. They either were a part of the Department of Human Services or Department of Youth Corrections. They lived in group homes and and uh, came to my school during the day. The other one was in a juvenile prison. Actually, I ran a school for a while in a juvenile prison uh, with kids who committed some of the most serious crimes statewide. And then the school I opened in Adams County called uh, Mesa was um, a district public high school that had a reform-minded superintendent who wanted to see dramatic change and empowered us to be able to uh, redesign the school and, and rebuild the staff and uh, and turn it around into what was a arts-based curriculum that had a real focus on project-based learning in a community of mostly 
Mexican and Guatemalan immigrant families and had an amazing uh, and rewarding experience there for four years. And so putting it all together, you're running in uh, to you're running in a Democratic primary and you're running against at least one of your opponents uh, serves on the Education and Workforce Committee. Uh, I imagine that there's this is my this could be one of the more substantive debates on education in a primary uh, in democratic politics around the country. Um, tell us a little bit about uh, what you believe, uh, what you would do as governor, um, and how that might be different than what some of your opponents might be proposing. You bet, and I do think you're right. We have a lot of folks who care about education in this primary. I am the only one who's been a school teacher and been a school principal, and I find, as you know. That gives you different perspective into how to solve problems and the way that those solutions work out on the ground. Uh, and so I think there are, um, you know, we just came out today with our, our education platform, which we're releasing, which has a couple of key areas of focus. One is obviously make sure you commit to, to having every Colorado child start early so we don't have full day kindergarten yet in the state of Colorado which uh, I think is a crime. And so we're gonna push to expand full day kindergarten to eliminate the wait list for kids on preschool so we can get three and four year olds into uh, get an early start to get them ready for school. So I think that's a critical part. And then in the K-12 system, we wanna both make sure that we have an adequate number of resources and dollars for that system, but also that they are distributed equitably. So you're actually putting dollars in the places where uh, we need them the most, which includes a lot of our rural communities that have been left behind and don't have the resources they need and some of our highest needs urban communities. And so we've really focused on how do we get those schools and communities the resources they need? How do we give them the autonomy they need to make decisions at the local level? Um, and how do we set really high standards for everybody in the state? And how do we help hold folks accountable to those standards? And so I think there's some folks who believe you just put money into the old system and allow it to work the way it's always worked. I believe you have to make sure that you know that those dollars are gonna go to places where we need them the most and that where we spend those dollars, they'll have the highest possible impact on uh, student success and on making communities places where folks can thrive and live. And so um, we're focused on that combination of investing in the places that make the most difference, making sure we can recruit and retain and reward a world-class teaching force here in Colorado, uh, and then making sure every kid has access to, to post-secondary training and to college in a way that's both affordable and accessible. And so I think those are the, and we've come out with a plan called the Colorado Promise, which would allow people at any stage of their career up to two years of either skills training or apprenticeship work or community college uh, that they could get access to debt-free in exchange for providing service to the state. So our idea is that nothing's free in Colorado, you gotta work for it, but if you do work for it, there ought to be opportunity at the end of it. And so our version is like a civilian version of the National Guard where you could keep your day job five days a week but come and provide service 10 or 12 weekends out of the year and that service helps earn you the job training to get ready for the skills you need for the jobs that are coming. So whether that means you're a 50 year old coal miner who's looking at a change in your industry or an 18 year old high school graduate trying to find a first career, um, we're trying to create a new version of education that is one that really is a lifetime learning commitment, knowing that folks are gonna have to reskill and upskill so many times over the course of their career now to be successful. And so tell us a little bit about the problem that needs to be solved right now. So. What are the outcomes right now for kids across Colorado? Where are the gaps and, and where might the state have uh, actually improved over the past decade or so? Yeah, you know, we know we, 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 Colorado is one of the most courageous states on taking on some key reforms at the state level in the last decade, and I'm proud to be a part of a lot of those. Uh, and so, you know, if you look at almost 10 years ago in a city like Denver, you know, we had about a 35% graduation rate uh, in Denver public schools, which was, which was atrocious. And you had 
uh, massive gaps between communities of kids, much more low-income kids and kids of color uh, not completing. What we did is said, yes, we want to have high-quality standards, want to have high-quality assessments, want to have meaningful evaluations, and want to hold ourselves accountable to those. And in the last eight years, we've more than doubled that. The graduation rate in the metro area in Denver is now more than 70%. Um, so we've made good progress. We're, we're, uh, we're heading in the right direction, yet there's still a lot of work to do. We still have uh, real gaps across the state in terms of performance. We still have huge gaps between uh, between white kids and, and kids of color around completion and around performance. And that's true across income brackets as well. Uh, and that's true around college persistence and completion. And so I think we have real achievement gaps to address statewide. And I think we also still have just general performance challenges across the entire state. We still see that about two thirds of Colorado graduates uh, are not college ready on at least one metric, whether that's reading or writing or math or science. And so we have almost two thirds of our kids who are gonna have to take remedial courses when they show up to a college campus in Colorado and that's not good enough. So I think we've made some real progress in closing gaps and improving outcomes, but we still have real work to do uh, in making sure more and more kids are ready. And so, you know, you are unique in, in the respect that you are known for delivering hard truths on education as a Democrat. And, you know, one thing that we've seen out here as, as Democrats who believe uh, that, you know, our kids are getting a raw deal is that there, there's a lot of attacks coming from the left in particular and the Democratic Party on standards, on assessments, um, on the very idea that you can measure learning. Uh, and it seems that um, based on what I'm, I know about you and, and on the Colorado Promise Plan that you just outlined, that the idea of uh, distributing resources equitably and combining that with high standards uh, talking about college readiness um, as a measure, it will require measurement and assessment and accountability, like words and, and policies that have been under attack over the past 10 years. Um, how do you talk to Democrats who are skeptical of tests and of data and of words like accountability? Like, how do you, what, what moves folks to action uh, on behalf of kids and some of the policies that you outline? Yeah, it's a really important point. Yeah. I always say to folks, you know, not knowing that you're sick doesn't make you well, right? Which is the notion that by not looking at data about where we are is going to make the system better is not something I think we would ever do with any other part of our kids' lives, right? I wouldn't, if my child was sick, I wouldn't say, well, as long as I don't take him to the doctor, then he's going to be fine because I won't know how ill he is. I would say, no, that's why you do annual checkups. And that's why when you see signs of concern, you get uh, information and you act on that information. And so, uh, as you said, I was having a great conversation yesterday with one of our real activist community leaders here in Denver who runs a podcast. And, you know, he's uh, very concerned about the achievement gaps between uh, uh, black kids and white kids across Colorado and is really angry at the Denver School Board and is upset with the superintendent about not doing enough. Um, and I would say that is exactly why we need high quality standards and we need high quality assessments and we need real accountability. It's because those folks who want to have the right to be upset at their school boards and their school leaders ought to be able to say, why is it that there are only 30 or 40 African-American students in the 10th grade that are scoring advanced on the math CSAP um, or the math park assessment? Without that data, we wouldn't know that we have a lot more work we have to do to support our communities of color. And so I think that data is the single most important tool uh, to be able to reveal where we're doing a good job and reveal where we're not, and then really hold us accountable to all voters and parents and how to do better. And so I think, and then, and then the other part is, 
I think really pushing to make sure that that information is usable and is actionable, right? I've been in meetings as a parent before where I go in and get my child's first grade reading score and they tell me she has a 237 and I have no idea what that number means or what I'm supposed to do about it or what actions I should take at home that night as a parent to get her to a 238 or should I get her to a 338? Um, and so I think one of the things we haven't always done well uh, is to help make sure we have information that is actionable, which is here's where your child is uh, and here's what she needs and here are the resources you can provide or the places you can find them to help support her. And so I think we have an obligation to do both well, but our first obligation ought to be to always tell the truth about what uh, our kids are knowing and able to do so we can so we can use it as a tool to help them succeed more. And so, you know, one, one issue that I have a really hard time getting candidates, even candidates we support, uh, to talk about is the issue of charter schools. And I think one of the issues, one of the reasons why that's true is Betsy DeVos has become such a lightning rod uh, and has been an advocate for uh, for charters. And if, you, if you're not sort of well-versed on the issue, you kind of lump it all together. Um, what is your position on charter schools? You know, Colorado has a, a famously strong charter school uh, sector, especially in Denver. Uh, and, you know, what what would you say to somebody who tries to lump you into the same camp as somebody like a Betsy DeVos? Yeah, I've been really clear on this. You know, I was the uh, first one in our, in our field to come out and say that I don't think Betsy DeVos is qualified to be Secretary of Education. I opposed her uh, appointment and I gave a speech last week on all the ways in which I think she is deeply miscarrying the fundamental purpose of the Secretary of Education's role, which is to look out for all kids around the country and to make sure the, the, the playing field is level, whether that's from you know, failure to support expansion of early childhood all the way up to uh, you know, Pell Grant, not expanding Pell Grants all the way to you know, repealing campus sex assault protections under Title IX. And so I think that is not uh, what the Secretary is called to do. And I think you know, expanding, you know, cutting 25% of the budget for things like teacher retention and development and cutting loan forgiveness programs in order to invest in uh, private voucher programs, I don't think is supported by evidence um, or serves kids well. And so I've said, yes, I believe in public school choice because I believe in uh, accountability. And one of the things that you don't get when you get vouchers is you don't get accountability for public dollars. And so if you're going to send kids to schools that are not taking state tests, are not proving that they've passed certain metrics, are not making sure they're delivering on outcomes, that's not a responsible way to spend taxpayer dollars. And so uh, I have said, yes, I support public school choice and Colorado has built a great coalition that backs that because it does allow for innovation without giving up accountability. Um, and I think every taxpayer should demand that. So I've been very clear on saying, this is not an, you know, this is not the Bessie DeVos agenda. I'm very proud to be a supporter of the you know, Barack Obama agenda uh, and of the Arne Duncan agenda and of the John King and of all of the folks that are teachers and principals who fought to bring real and lasting change by giving parents high quality choices that are accessible to them. So uh, I'm not, I don't shy away from drawing those distinctions because I think there are folks who have always opposed the idea of uh, options for kids within the public school system who are trying to use Betsy DeVos's agenda to, to taint what I think has been a very strong and stable bipartisan coalition who want to provide kids good public choices. You know, transitioning to the, just the state of the race, the system in Colorado, for those of us who are not from the state, and maybe even from folks who are from the state, uh, is a little mysterious to us. Um, it includes, from what we understand, a caucus, but also an open primary system. Um, do you mind just giving us a 
uh, a, an overview of, of what to expect, uh, you know, what are the sort of the, the key inputs uh, to victory, like what, how the, the caucus matters and um, what this open primary system is and even what the date of the election is and, and what your strategy for victory is. You bet. Um, so our, our election is just a primary. It's on June 26th. We do have vote by mail in Colorado. So every, we have pretty high turnout because everyone gets a, a ballot mailed to their kitchen table. Um, and we also have, as you said, for the first time, we just passed in Colorado a uh, an open primaries where it allows independent or unaffiliated voters to vote in either the Democratic or the Republican primary. So a Republican can't vote in a Democratic primary, but an unaffiliated voter, of which we have almost 40% of the state, um, they could now vote in either primary. So it almost doubles the size of your primary electorate. Um, so I think it'll get we'll get a much broader, more diverse group of people who participate in our Democratic primary, which I think is great for us. Uh, in terms of how you get to the primary, there are two ways to get on the ballot in Colorado. One is you can go out and gather petitions uh, to get people to ask to put you on the ballot, which we did and we uh, made history by breaking the record for the fastest campaign ever to get on the ballot um, and as the first campaign ever to do it without outside paid vendors. So we just did it. We got 23,000 signatures in about 30 days just with our own organizing team and our volunteer base statewide. So that that had never been done. So we were the first campaign on the ballot, delighted to be on the ballot. Uh, the other process through which you can try to get on the ballot is to go through caucus. Uh, you're not required to, but you can. That's a smaller universe of voters. And, um, and so uh, we attended the early caucuses just as a way to get our name out and talk to people recruit volunteers. We are already on the ballot, so don't need to go to the state assembly, um, but I expect there will be one or two candidates that come out of that process. Historically, uh, it has not been a good predictor of success in the primary. And as a matter of fact, in the last 25 years, there has never been a Democrat who won the caucus in Colorado who actually went on to win the primary. Uh, and so it is one way to get on the ballot, but it is, it is not a very good predictor of your likelihood of being successful after that. Got it. Uh, and so as we close out, I want to talk about, you know, some of the, you know, you came out and were pretty uh, vocal and strident um, on the issue of gun control and school shootings in a state that uh, has a, an interesting history, both of high-profile school shootings and tragedy, but also a strong libertarian streak. Tell us a little bit about um, you know what your positions are, what you've you know what you've come out and said recently, uh, and also how you might communicate your position to folks who are like super strong libertarian gun rights activists in uh in colorado you bet i i think i'm different from a lot of other democrats um particularly on the coast and maybe in colorado and that i i am a gun owner and have been a gun owner almost my whole life and so um i bring a slightly different perspective to this i own four guns now and you know grew up learning to shoot from my dad i shoot skeet for fun and so that's been a part of my cultural upbringing just like a lot of folks that are gun owners uh, i also find as someone who has been a gun owner my whole life i've, I've never seen a real reason why someone needs a hundred round magazine to hunt an elk or why you need a bump stock to defend your home. And so I think that's given me some real clarity on what those common sense solutions are. And it's meant I'm not afraid to take on and fight the NRA on these things that I think are unreasonable. So uh, we come out with a, a plan we call uh, for no more, which is people keep asking, what are the things that we can do for no more of these type of mass shootings? And what's the actual policy solution? And I think they're our solutions, and we've laid out what I think the four critical steps are in this four no more plan, and they are, first, you get military-style weapons off the streets of Colorado and the streets of the country, and we've really focused on magazine limits as the most uh, 
dangerous part of that assault weapon definition is you really want to focus on banning high capacity magazines. I sponsored that in Colorado and we passed it. I fought the NRA and won on that. Second one is you need to uh, require universal background checks for every time you buy a weapon anywhere, anytime for any person. I also proudly supported that, fought the NRA and the legislature and we won on that. So two of the four we've already gotten done in Colorado. The next two are yes, you have to ban bump stocks. Uh, and then the final one is put in place what, what we uh, advocated for as red flag laws or what we call gun violence restraining orders, which is a process by which you can keep guns out of the hands of those who have shown to be a danger to themselves or others, um, or take them out of the hands of those that have shown to be a danger to themselves or others. And that I've committed to doing as governor, and we've already gotten bipartisan support from conservative activists here that would that would support us as well. And so I think there is a purple bipartisan agenda for gun safety if you have the courage to take it on. And I've gotten half of it done as a senator, we'll get the other half done as governor. And I think that's something that Colorado as a Rocky Mountain frontier state could really show the rest of the country that things are possible. If you look back at almost every one of the mass shootings over the last 20 years in, in American life, almost every one of them has had one of these four components involved. If you have a strong framework that protects all four of those, I think you dramatically change the, the course of history around gun violence. And so in closing, what, how can folks get involved, folks who are both outside of Colorado and folks within your state in this home stretch of the, the primary campaign? Yes, we would love to get you involved. Um, if you're here in Colorado, I'd love to get you involved as a volunteer, uh, as a supporter, as a donor. Easiest way is to come to our website, MikeJohnsonForColorado.com, and you can sign up on TrailMap, which is a, uh, a new platform we built for folks to engage in volunteer activities. Or you can just email me directly, Mike at Mike Johnston for Colorado, forcolorado.com, and we'll get you hooked in. And for folks that say, oh, well, I don't live in Colorado, I can't really help. No, actually you can. We have uh, what we call uh, VOCOs, which are voter outreach uh, coalitions, which are people that are doing voter outreach from any part of the country. So if you wanna help make phone calls or reach out on social media, we have teams of folks that will be getting together to do phone banks and others in whatever community you're in. And so if you wanna get involved with that, uh, email me as well, and we'll connect you to some people that are in your neighborhood or in your city who are helping try to stand up to say they want to have thoughtful leadership for the country. And this is a moment where governors' races are more important than ever. And so I think even if you're not from Colorado, you have a real interest in making sure Colorado has a governor that's going to be uh, both courageous and collaborative on getting big things done over the next decade. Well, Mike, thank you for being a true advocate for kids and good luck out there on the campaign trail. Thank you so much for the amazing work y'all are doing at Arena. I'm so inspired to see what's happening around the country and delighted to be a small part of uh, the coalition that you're building. Thank you.